I'm Satya Doyle Bayak, and this is the Salome Podcast. Something is making its approach to us. Our wars are results of projection, of not being able to understand that what we are actually fighting externally is something we don't want to fight inside of ourselves. Here we are, how will we hold this? How will we hold the light inside the dark? If consciousness is going to shift on the planet, it shifts in the single individual. In each episode, my co-host Carol Ferris and I explore the social and personal relevance of Carl Jung's magnum opus, known as The Red Book. Carol and I began recording these episodes as live salons online on the first Sunday of our COVID quarantine in Portland, Oregon, in the spring of 2020. Each week, we welcome the community into our conversation with a concluding Q&A. Today, we have a huge amount of material. We're going to be exploring Nox Segunda, the second night, and continuing from Divine Folly from last week. Carol, do you want to set us up for this week? I'm so struck by the trajectory of Jung's insights, which begin with a world structure in which he has a great deal of confidence, and through the, mur- the collapse, the murder of the hero, the elimination of capacity, the arrival of the feminine soul, the stooping to the lowly. I, if you just think about every place that Jung has been through last week, Divine Folly, in which when all of your human transcendent conscious political schemes don't work anymore, what's left? And he said in, in the reading last week, the divine wants to come and live with me. I don't, what does that mean? Mm-hmm. And so now we come now to h- how to live now. Now that, uh, that this, the trajectory of my past, my identities, my constructions, I see them with a much different perspective. I'm not invested in them in the way I was. Now what is before me? Mm-hmm. And, and it's folly, but I'm open to it. So, right. so here we are now. And for me, the, the two really powerful themes that are linked in this, the meaning, the meaning of the animal, which includes profoundly matter, mother, feminine, and the animal body, the material body, but the, but the further implication of mortality and of be, situating yourself in relationship to all life that's come before you, that your life is dependent on what has come before you. Mm-hmm. So those are the things so, that really you know stand out for me. I think we'll start a little bit in the middle and then come back to the story today. But to yeah. just the very briefest of beginnings, last week Jung saw two doors and he went to the right door and he engaged with the librarian and the old scholar again. And today the story begins, he sees the left door and he turns into the right, or I'm sorry, he turns to the left door and he, he finds this portly female cook standing uh, at the stove and he sits down and she w- sort of welcomes him. She's a little confused by what he's doing, but she sort of welcomes him. But I'm going to take us before we get into the dialogue, just to dive straight in 
to this exploration of the animal body because I think it's so profound. And it actually starts with this exploration of the plant body. And if you'll remember, we've spoken about the serpentine path. Jung speaks about the serpentine path, the right to left, that the way to wholeness is the serpentine path. He uses that phrase a lot. And you'll see him exploring the same phenomenon here, but with the idea of plant growth and the way that plants inherently balance themselves right to left, right to left. So this is, again, this is page 338 in the reader for those who want to follow along. The growing plant sprouts a sapling on its right-hand side, and when this is completely formed, the natural urge to grow will not develop beyond the final bud, but flows back into the stem, into the mother of the sprig, paving an uncertain way in the dark and through the stem, and finally finding the right position on the left, where it sprouts a new sapling. But this new direction of growth is completely opposed to the previous one. And yet the plant nevertheless grows regularly in this way without overstraining or disturbing its balance. On the right is my thinking, on the left is my feeling. I enter the space of my feeling which was previously unknown to me and see with astonishment the difference between the two rooms. I cannot help laughing. Many laugh instead of crying. I have stepped from the right foot onto the left and wince, struck by inner pain. And I'll just pause here. Remember that image from many chapters ago. I believe it's, it's the image of, or the, the chapter hell, when Jung is bouncing back and forth between engaging with Isdubar, between the hot and the cold, the hot and the cold. So he's still engaged in this, but here now we're in the right room of thinking with the scholar and the left room of feeling with the female cook. The difference between hot and cold is too great. I leave the spirit of this world, which has thought Christ through to the end and step over into that other funny, frightful realm in which I can find Christ again. The imitation of Christ led me to the master himself and to an astonishing kingdom. I do not know what I want there, I can only follow the master who governs this other realm in me. In this realm, other laws are valid than the guidelines of my wisdom. Here, the mercy of God, which I had never relied on for good practical reasons, is the highest law of action. The mercy of God signifies a particular state of the soul in which I entrust myself to, an all, to all neighbors with trembling and hesitation and with the mightiest outlay of hope that everything will work out well. I can no longer say that this or that goal should be reached or that this or that reason should apply because it is good. Instead, I grope through mist and night. No line emerges, no law appears. Instead, everything is thoroughly and convincingly accidental. As a matter of fact, even terribly accidental. But one thing becomes dreadfully clear, namely that contrary to my earlier way and all its insights and intentions, henceforth all is error. It becomes ever more apparent that nothing leads as my hope sought to persuade me, but that everything misleads. And suddenly, to your shivering horror, it becomes clear to you that you have fallen into the boundless, the abyss, the inanity of the eternal chaos. It rushes towards you as if carried by the roaring winds of a storm, the hurtling waves of the sea. 
every man has a quiet place in his soul where everything is self-evident and easily explainable, a place to which he likes to retire from the confusing possibilities of life because there everything is simple and clear with a manifest and limited purpose. About nothing else in the world can a man say with the same conviction as he does of this place. You are nothing but, and indeed he has said it. I'll pause there. There's so much here. So Jung is beginning to encounter in the kitchen souls of the dead who have unfinished business on this earth. And he's exploring what their unfinished business is. Well, and they're hungry. Mm -hmm. You know, you think about all of the kind of modern attachment, interest, about zombies, about how the role that that zombie life has played in the popular culture, not just in the American culture, but everywhere. This this idea that something wants us, you know, this idea of appetite, of our own appetites reflected back. It's not about redemption. It's not about resolution. But it's why it's interesting that it's a cook and a woman and appetite and hunger. Absolutely. It's so corporal. It's so physical. It's so much about the stomach and and the deep self. And he's really switching gears very profoundly here from a Christian notion of following a specific set of belief systems. And he's shifting gears towards evolution, the recognition that the biological, the, the matter, the mater, the self that has been so deeply entwined with evil in Christianity, the feminine, the evil, mater, matter, the body, nature, that he's pulling all of that back and saying, if we don't engage with that, we are not evolving. We are stuck in an idea, an idea from the past. So I want to read one footnote here that just stands out to me powerfully in that respect. And that's footnote 175. This is actually from the imitation of Christ, but just to contemplate here the deep ways in which instinct was tied to the devil, tied to Satan, tied to darkness, so that the feminine, if we want to call it feminine instinct or the embodied instinct or the mater quality of existence, that gets tied to the devil and then it gets completely shut out through dogma. And if you're raised in that tradition, it's an impossible thing to break. If you're raised in a, still today, some of the most difficult clients that I have to work with are people for whom the ideas of their dogma or their religion teaches them in very deep and complex ways to reject their body and reject instinct. So footnote 175 is from The Imitation of Christ. As long as we are in this world, we shall have to face trials and temptations. As it says in the book of Job, what is man's life on earth but a time of temptation? That is why we should treat our temptations as a serious matter and endeavor by vigilance and prayer to keep the devil from finding any loophole. Remember that the devil never sleeps but goes about looking for his prey. There is no one so perfect and holy that he never meets temptation. We cannot escape it altogether. Well, going on from where you were reading, he begins to talk about the relationship of matter, the feminine, the animal, and the, not the eternal, but the, and not the historical, but what has come before us. And one of the things, one of the places that I went with all of this is it showed, it showed me again how radical Jung was because the European 
truly Western world sensibility about matter and the animal body was so profoundly shaped by very early theological ideas about the animal nature. And um, I, I picked back up this book, Man and the Natural World, A History of the Modern Sensibility by a British man named Keith Thomas, in which he lays out the European idea of modern human sensibility. And he talks about how the theological foundation of a modern mind is that the world is created for men and other species are subordinated to man's wishes and needs. That the subjugation of the natural world is important because there's no civilization if you don't conquer nature. That humans are unique that humans have beauty, speech, and reason, which leads to religious and moral agency and responsibility, and animals do not. And the implication is since we have souls and have eternal life and they do not, they can be killed and used. And that religion and morality successfully limit man's animal nature and the attendant assignment to women of the animal nature. So I think about this person in a very long history of this attitude towards humans in relationship to matter, to nature and to mother. Then he goes on, on page uh, 341, he goes on to say, the animal does not rebel against its own kind. Consider animals, how just they are how well-behaved, how they keep to the time honored, how loyal they are to the land that bears them, how they hold to their accustomed routes, how they care for the young, how they go together to pasture, and how they draw one another to the spring. And he's saying they, but he means us. But keep reading that. Okay. Keep reading that whole paragraph. There is not one that conceals its overabundance of prey and lets its brother starve as a result. There is not one that tries to enforce its will on those of its own kind. Not a one mistakenly imagines that it is an elephant when it is a mosquito. The animal lives fittingly and true to the life of its species, neither exceeding nor falling short of it. He who never lives his animal must treat his brother like an animal. Abase yourself and live your animal so that you will be able to treat your brother correctly and your sister. You will thus redeem all those roaming dead who strive to feed on the living and do not turn anything you do into a law, since that is the hubris of power. So and it's very, if you think about entitled humanity, that this, his process has brought him to a complete revisioning and understanding of place in the world. And that the kind of radical restructuring that it asks of anybody who gets to this place is this idea that you can make the world, that you're the world maker. And the only problem with that is the world's already made. Mm-hmm. So then the, the challenge of what, of what he's coming to is not how do you, as we have, impose your will and the hierarchy that comes from it, from a mistaken belief that you're better than or that you're not animal, 
how then do you live in that body? And that's where all this wonderful discussion about intuition comes in. And I really want to hear from Anne what the German, what the translation of the word intuition is. Let me read this, this footnote first, and then okay. let's switch, switch to Anne and the, and the cook. Okay. Because okay. I think what's so profound in all of this as well is Jung is in his deconstruction of this Christian patriarchal capitalist mind frame where everything is usable, that all material on this earth is there for humans to use, particularly white men or European men, right? This idea that everything is in a hierarchy and can be used because this was the appointed human. He's completely deconstructing that. And, and so footnote 180, he's referring to the way that our own animal selves get our own chaotic, unfulfilled, crazed animal selves, which, which ties so deeply to the projection of Salome that he encounters. So here the feminine and the animal are deeply bound with evil and with chaos, but it is what is profoundly unconscious and, and neglected. So he's identifying this projection and naming it. He says, page 342, footnote 180. In 1930, Jung said in a seminar, we are prejudiced in regard to the animal. People don't understand when I tell them they should become acquainted with their animals or assimilate their animals. They think the animal is always jumping over walls and raising hell all over town. Yet in nature, the animal is a well-behaved citizen. It is pious. It follows the path with great regularity. It does nothing extravagant. Only man is extravagant. So if you assimilate the character of the animal, you become a peculiarly law-abiding citizen. You go very slowly, and you become very reasonable in your ways, in as much as you can afford it. That is so profound to me in so many ways. But he's that line about the elephant and the mosquito that I wanted you to read, Carol, is for me working with quarter life, what Jung would call the first half of life, working with people who are trying to find their way in the world. If they're doing it exclusively with their brains, they are going to lose their minds. And that is 90% of how we raise people. So if yeah. instead we're encouraging folks to, to re-embody and to learn their bodies and to learn when their body says stop or go, yes or no, hot or cold, like or dislike, I talk about Goldilocks in that way. Mm -hmm. When we learn our embodied selves, decision-making becomes a less complicated process. And so Jung's really encouraging, figure, find in your body if you're a mosquito or an elephant, find if you're a lion or a snake. Just find who you are and then decisions unfold from that place instead of adhering to a dogma that was written thousands of years ago and has only been bastardized since then, right? So it's so profound to me. And, and this question of living the animal and also reclaiming the projection on animals is of particular importance to me. It just makes me happy. It makes me happy to read it. So I'd love maybe then we tie this back to the feminine. We can talk, Carol, why don't, maybe if you can read the beginning of this chapter and then we'll invite Anne in to speak about her feelings and love of the cook. Okay, so on page 333. On leaving the library, I stood in the anteroom again. This time I look across to the door on the left. I put the small book into my pocket and go to the door it is also open and leads to a large kitchen 
with a large chimney over the stove. Two long tables stand in the middle of the room, flanked by benches. Brass pots, copper pans, and other vessels stand on shelves along the walls. A large, fat woman is standing at the stove, apparently the cook, wearing a checkered apron. I greet her, somewhat astonished. She too seems embarrassed. I ask her, may I sit down for a while? It's cold outside and I must wait for something. Please have a seat. She wipes the table in front of me. Having nothing else to do, I take out my Thomas and begin to read. This is the Thomas Akempis from last week. The cook is curious and looks at me furtively. Every once in a while, she goes past me. Excuse me, she says, are you perhaps a clergyman? No, why do you think so? Oh, I just thought you might be because you are reading a small black book. My mother, may God rest her soul, left me such a book. I see in what book might that be? It is called The Imitation of Christ. It's a very beautiful book. I often pray with it in the evenings. You have guessed well. I too am reading The Imitation of Christ. I don't believe that a man like you would read such a book unless he were a pastor. Why shouldn't I read it, says Jung. It also does me good to read a proper book. She says, my mother, God bless her, had it with her on her deathbed, and she gave it to me before she died. I browse through the book absentmindedly while she is speaking. My eyes fall on the following passage in the 19th chapter. The righteous base their intentions more on the mercy of God, which in whatever they undertake, they trust more than their own wisdom. This is the intuitive method that Thomas recommends, it occurs to me. I turn to the cook. Your mother was a clever woman, and she did well to give you this book. Yes, indeed, it has often comforted me in difficult hours, and it always provides good counsel. I become immersed in my thoughts again. I believe one can also follow one's own nose. That would also be the intuitive method. But the beautiful way in which Christ does this must nevertheless be of special value. I would like to imitate Christ. An inner disquiet seizes me. What is supposed to happen? I hear an odd swishing and whirring, and suddenly a roaring sound fills the room like a horde of large birds. With a frenzied flapping of wings, I see many shadow-like human forms rush past, and I hear a manifold babble of voices utter the words, Let us pray in the temple. Where are you rushing off to? I call out. A bearded man with tousled hair and dark shining eyes stops and turns towards me. We are wandering to Jerusalem to pray the most holy sepulcher. Take me with you. You cannot join us. You have a body, but we are dead. He goes on like this in this conversation with Ezekiel, the Anabaptist. And in their conversation, he says, why do you have no peace if you died in true belief? It always comes to me as if we had not come to a proper end with life. Remarkable, how so? The Anabaptist says, it seems to me we forgot something important that should also have been lived. And what was that? Would you happen to know? With these words, he reaches out greedily and uncannily towards me, his eyes shining as if from inner heat. 
Let go, Diamond. You did not live your animal. The cook is standing in front of me with a horrified face. She has taken me by the arm and grips me firmly. For God's sakes, she calls out. Help, what's wrong with you? Are you in a bad way? I look at her astonished and wonder where I really am. Thank you, Carol. It goes on. And, you know, so you can imagine Jung is sitting in this kitchen. He privately is having this encounter with the dead, these spirits who have rushed in. The cook can't see him. So he's in a vision upon a vision, right? He's like leaning back into all of this material. And the cook shakes him. What's going on? He's pretty soon, we'll see if we can get to all of it, but he's pretty soon dragged off to the madhouse and, and engages with a couple of psychiatrists who give him a diagnosis. That continues in the next chapter, so we'll see how much we get to today. But Anne, we would love to hear from you on your experience reading this chapter, your encounter with the cook, and with intuition. Yes, the word used in German is intuitiva. It's the same word. There's another word for it which means sensing ahead of time. Uh, you know, sort of a foresensing, but he is using the same word in German. Also, I just wanted to quickly say, and I don't have it memorized exactly, it's so much like the line from Mary Oliver, all you have to do is learn how to love. You have to know what the soft animal of your body loves what it loves. I screwed it up again, but you're, that's absolutely, it's the same thing, right? It's in there. Anyway, so what I had written to you was I had already done my notes for the whole, for, for this verse, And I went to bed one night. She kept haunting me. The cook kept haunting me and the table and all the pots and crocks and pans. And I lay down. This is just two nights ago, I think. I couldn't get her out of my mind. Finally, 10.30 or 11 o'clock, I get up. I say, I've got to find her. Where is she in Western art history? And I go and I take down all my books thinking I can locate her. And she's nowhere. And I challenge people to go and find her. I mean, as I say, I spent the whole, practically the whole night pouring through these books. I finally found one, which was by Vermeer, but it was a maiden. It was a maid. It was a farmer's maid in the kitchen. And I thought, isn't this extraordinary? And I would sort of flip from the beginning of the book all the way to the end. Where is that? full-bodied, peasant-rooted, it's really the great mother. We don't have a good word for it in English. It includes the mother, but it's also the daughter. It's the feminine. It's like a tree trunk. It's like a great big old oak tree trunk that's so solid. And it's underneath all European civilization, but not appreciated. Flip through, you'll see countless Half-naked bodies or fully naked bodies. Women, they love that pose through the centuries with a sort of breast showing and then a little bit of drapery over. But always what she's expressing is, I am here either having just fulfilled or for the fulfillment of male desire. And then there's another image. Or I'm there because the man is afraid of that image. The other one that, of course, goes through the many centuries is the virgin, the pure ideal, the heavenly, still that innocence of girlhood is shining through her purity. So you get these two clear projections. And I'm saying, but where is that full-bodied tree trunk of 
stability and the feminine. Now, I don't know, you have a couple of images. She was clearly there 20,000, 40,000 years ago, and I sent you an image of the Venus of Willendorf. It makes me think, too, we, we hosted the five authors of the book, Seeing in the Dark, Wisdom Works by Black Women in Depth Psychology, yesterday at the Salome Institute, and Dr. Kimberly Howell mentioned Lizzo as being her goddess right now. Lizzo is, of course, this uh, phenomenal singer in pop culture, right, um, and has really brought back the idea of full-bodied beauty in a, in a new way, along with Adele, I think, and others. But here we have Carol or uh, Anne, you want to speak to the image? Well, of course, this is the Venus of Willendorf. And what I want, the only thing, I mean, you don't need to say much. You just need to look. She's full-breasted. She's probably pregnant. There's a great deal of emphasis on the whole child, not, not childbearing, earth-bearing part of her. Well, the head's there, but it's not of supreme importance. But it's Mother Earth as the feminine body and an incredible beauty. I mean, she's only about an inch high, but has had profound influence, but she got lost in European civilization. We forgot about her. She didn't really even get discovered till, till recently. So there's the Venus of Willendorf, and I knew, and I've got other such wonderful images, but I chose that particular one. We had her 20,000 years ago, but where is she gone? And that was what I kept saying as I kept going through the pouring through my art books. And then I would say, well, maybe she's there in Van Gogh. But of course, when you come across the peasant women in Van Gogh, they're extremely troubled. They're as neurotic as Van Gogh himself, deep black bags under their eyes and, and sort of black potatoes. There are some nice kitchen still lives. But, and then I thought, well, maybe Gauguin, I went there. But of course, once again, he takes the Tahitian women and turns them into the objet of his either coming pleasure or already fulfilled pleasure. But I could not believe two things. One, that it was how white all the images were and that I hadn't seen it. Now there's one, one person, and this is what you're looking at, Henry Moore, look at him in the back. That's the size of this compared. It's an elm tree that he's carved this out of. But I did know that there was one figure in Western civilization, Henry Moore, who really dedicated his entire life to the feminine, to the mother and child, to the female body. There's a book by Eric Neumann, who was one of Jung's, I think, most brilliant protégés, he died young. He died in his 50s. He went back to Israel. But he wrote, yes, he wrote The Great Mother. He wrote The Origins and History of Consciousness. He wrote another book called The Archetypal World of Henry Moore. And I'd like to tell just a short story about that. When I was studying in Munich, one of the art history classes was going to Venice. And we were all on the train. We were going to Venice. We got to the border of Italy. And they said, you don't have a passport. You've got to go back to Munich and get it. So I took the train all the way back to Munich, jumped out, went to the room where I, where I rented a room, grabbed my passport. And this, this house where I had a room was owned by a German woman doctor who was then studying at the Jung Institute. So as I'm running out the door to get the train, I grab one book off the shelf 
and it's the archetypal world of Henry Moore. So there I am all alone on the train because the class is probably by now in Venice. I'm all alone and I have this one book that I've grabbed off the shelf. And what he's talking about is that in Moore's work, visually, a totally new archetype is entering or re-entering Western civilization. And in that, what is one of the things that's happening is that the woman's body becomes trees, becomes rocks, becomes mountains. Now I'm on the train and I'm reading this and I look out the train window and what you do is you go through the pre-Alps, the small mountains and valleys between Germany and Italy. So I kept looking out the window and there was the great mother lying in that mountain and this mountain. There were her breasts, there was her body. Then I'd look back at the book and read Neumann. And then I'd look out the window and there she was in another position. And it was one of the really, it really changed my life, that train ride. I have no idea what I saw in Venice, but very clearly I can remember Henry Moore. So I kept thinking of that, I'll, I'll close this. I kept thinking of that with this great Swiss peasant woman in the kitchen thinking, yes, that's happening at the same time. And what we're looking at is the entry, the ushering in to Western European civilization of a new, a newly reborn, an ancient but a newly reborn archetype, one that's not only full-bodied, but where the sexuality, if you could talk about it, I'm trying to think where I wrote it, is seed and egg and mountain and tree and death and birth, all of that, all of that. And seduction is a part of it, but it's just a tiny piece of it. It's one piece of the whole arc. So stunning, Anne, because you're bringing it all back. I think too of the witch and the cauldron and pagan religion, right? That here we have a woman in the kitchen. I think of Aunt Jemima and the fact that she exists to serve white children in consciousness, this idea of service and and the way that that race and gender are intertwined in this respect in terms of service. But all of this right now, we're working on as a society yet again and trying to shift these projections and reclaim what our bodies know, what nature knows, what the earth knows. Exactly. And so I think it was a very prophetic omen that that was who was there re-entering the Red Book with that feminine image. Eric Neumann is just one, he is, in my mind, next to Jung. I mean, you know, von Franz is there, but Neumann, my God, he's extraordinary. And I'll just say too, because this book of his, The Fear of the Feminine and other essays on feminine psychology by Eric Neumann it is extraordinarily dense, but one of the essays in it is his deconstruction of female psychological development and the recognition that women need to face the fact that they have been inculcated into patriarchy in order to reclaim their souls. And so his profound understanding and support of female psychology is just always blows me away. Yeah, he really dedicated his life to it. He took that nugget from Jung and turned it into his, really basically his life's dedication, even though he died young. There's another one on, on new ethics, which is just- Well, that's, it's my, literally, 
Depth Psychology and a New Ethic. I've taught it a number yeah. of times, but it's in my top five favorite books. It is so important. It is such an important book. And what he's saying in this is live your animal. He says, if you don't live your own existence, there is no ethics. Stop trying right. to be good. Be a mosquito if you're a mosquito. Be an elephant and you're an, if you're an elephant. Stop trying to be good. And so he takes that core from Jung's book and really opens it up. It's so profound. The reason that I wanted, it's not on my screen, but if that one of Henry Moore is showing, as Moore matured, he, he realized, and you can see it especially in this, that he needed to do it in wood because wood was living. And this was an elm tree, an enormous elm tree. Look at how much bigger it is than Jung himself. He's mm -hmm. just very small. He had to wait for over a year until somebody finally called and said, we think we've got the tree you want. But what he's done here is he's turned the whole language of sculpture into an ability to say mother, earth, body, inside and outside. Mm -hmm. So you have a within and you have a without. It's, you have embryonic, you have form, you have birth, you have, it's all wrapped in there. I mean, I could go on, I could show you hundreds of images, but I think that that is what Jung is doing, whether we know it or not, at the beginning of this verse. Beautiful, Anne. Beautiful, thank you, Anne. This whole idea of how do we grow into the world? That how do we, in our separateness, come to be in relationship with otherness? The whole world is our parent, not just our mothers and fathers. And um, I remember I got to go snorkeling in Hawaii very early one morning when it was raining. So we were the only people that were there. Only Oregonians would be out swimming in the rain, I guess. <laughs> And we were in a little lagoon uh, on the big island, and there was a pod of dolphins that were swimming together in a figure eight, and they were sleeping. They had come off from the ocean depths into a safe place to rest for the night. And I found out later that they sleep by swimming in figure eights. And as they're sleeping, they're swimming, and they're all touching each other's bodies and sub-vocalizing, and they're all moving, and they're all in touch, and they're all connected. And it was a profound experience for me, like your moment on the train of how to be in relationship to your world, and the incredible connection and safety and constant presence of these creatures with each other and to each other and certainly from an astrological point of view, the zodiac is animals. One of the things that I say to my clients is, that's not an idle abstraction. We came from somewhere. You know? And it makes a difference in how it is that we embody our, our own nature. Not just, are you a, a mosquito or an elephant, or are you a scorpion or a bull or a lion, but... All of it, you know, I think about the cerebellum that, you know, I think about the reptile brain, the, the mammal brain and the cortical human brain and that that wants and us that wants to swim and be in connection with each other in our world. That's in us. It's there to be experienced and grasped and lived. And I, that's why when I came across this part of Jung, it was, a, it was how extraordinary really that he he got there.
Well, and again, that I think astrology helped him to get there over time or helped him to illuminate that mm-hmm. because I think of astrology as being that kind of chemistry set. Like we are each a combination of all of these different elements in all of these incredibly specific ways. And so that individual quality of each of us in the moment, the place of birth, plus our genetic history, plus our ethnic history, plus our nurturing or lack of nurturing, the specificity of all that becomes the animal nature and the specific animal nature. So to stop trying to live in imitation. Was it an Oscar Wilde quote? What's that quote? Stop trying to be anybody else. They're already doing a better job of it. It's already taken, whatever that great line is, you know, and so to live your own existence. And and I just love the sweetness with which Jung is doing that. And, and he's really solidifying that. Um, and again, Anne, I love bringing in Eric Neumann because I think the two of them are in deep relationship around this question. I also am thinking of the phrase, I can't remember who said it. It's also an idea whose time has come. Mm. You can see that they're all, the, uh, something's being born right then. It is, she is an idea whose time has come. Mm-hmm. Here, here. Yeah. Again, come again. <laughs> yeah. The beautiful one has come. <laughs> uh, yeah. If we think about an ancestral line, one of the things I loved about the salon yesterday with these in- remarkable, clear, expressive women, yeah. towards the end, one of the questions that came to them was when I discovered Jung, I felt like I was in touch with the ancestors. And you could see that it lit up the conversation because they all talk about the relationship with the ancestors. And it's not just your great grandmother and genealogy, you know, dot com. It's where did we, how, how did we get here? Not just ontogeny recapitulates phylogeny. You know, where, where do our forms come from? I remember working with my Alexander person, and she's working on my hand. She goes, oh, your fins. I said, what? She said, this is your fins. They used to be fins. And so you can, you know, as you feel into what made us and our, the grounded relationship with our making, including not just our human ancestors, but, but all our ancestors. It's why as Jung gets, as he does, from animal to ancestors and the ancestral dead, I think that it's it, so important because if we go from a place of thinking that somehow we're special and, and we'll be immortal, that we won't have the stink of death on us or that we're not connected to people who have died and the whole idea of loss and, and memory then we're really, really lonely. I think, Carol, I'm going to take that to read the last page or so of this reading and close us out, because I think in this, Jung is speaking directly to Egypt. I hear him speaking directly to Egypt, and part of this quality of all of our ancestors and the way that certain cultures actually took care of the dead in such profound ways, right? You can feel the profound relationship to the dead in the other world here that Jung feels we have lost deeply. And when we lose connection to death and dying, and we lose connection to the dead and the other worlds, that we live in a blindness. And so he really opens that up very beautifully. And so I'll start here on page 346, and I'll read to the end of this chapter. 
you should have reverence for what has become so that the law of love may become redemption through the restoration of the lower and of the past, not perdition through the boundless mastery of the dead. But the spirits of those who die before their time will live for the sake of our present incompleteness in dark hordes, in the rafters of our houses, and besiege our ears with urgent laments, until grant them redemption through restoring what has existed since ancient times under the rule of law, under the rule of love. What we call temptation is the demand of the dead who passed away prematurely and incomplete through the guilt of the good and of the law. For no good is so complete that it could not do injustice and break what should not be broken. We are a blinded race. We live only on the surface, only in the present, and think only of tomorrow. We deal roughly with the past and that we do not accept the dead. We want to work only with visible success. Above all, we want to be paid. We would consider it insane to do hidden work that does not visibly serve men. There is no doubt that the necessity of life forced us to prefer only those fruits one can taste. But who suffers more from the tempting and misleading influence of the dead than those who have gone wholly missing on the surface of the world? There is one necessary but hidden and strange work, a major work, which you must do in secret for the sake of the dead. He who cannot attain his own visible field and vineyard is held fast by the dead who demand the work of atonement from him. And until he has fulfilled this, he cannot get to his outer work since the dead do not let him. He shall have to search his soul and act in stillness at their behest and complete the mystery so that the dead will not let him. Do not look forward so much, but back and into yourself that you will not fail to hear the dead. It belongs to the way of Christ that he ascends with few of the living, but many of the dead. His work was the salvation of the despised and lost, for whose sake he was crucified between two criminals. I suffer my agony between two madmen. I enter the truth if I descend. Become accustomed to being alone with the dead. It is difficult, but this is precisely how you will discover the worth of your living companions." what the ancients did for their dead. You seem to believe that you could absolve yourself from the care of the dead and from the work that they so greatly demand since what is dead is past. You excuse yourself with your disbelief in the immortality of the soul. Do you think that the dead do not exist because you have devised the impossibility of immortality? You believe in your idols of words. The dead produce effects that is sufficient in, that is sufficient. In the inner world, there is no explaining away as little as you can explain away the sea in the outer world. You must finally understand your purpose in explaining away, namely to seek protection. I accept the chaos. And in the following night, my soul approached me. So that's where we begin then for next week is the soul approaching Jung. Oh, I, last thing I'll say here is just there's there's so much allusion to Jung's seven sermons of the dead, which becomes a huge part of his work, which is reprinted at the end of Memories, Dreams, Reflections, his memoir. 
Uh, it's, it's something that came a bit later in this journey for him, but very likely had something to do with the drafts that he was reworking for the Red Book. And the Seven Sermons of the Dead also shows up profoundly in scrutinies, which we'll touch on at the end of our journey together. But he's really exploring how do you deal with the dead, the ghosts who are coming to us or to Jung in very powerful ways and asking for redemption in some form. And what Jung is saying is the redemption is embodiment. And, and because of embodiment, almost certainly then this relationship back to the feminine and corporality. So we end there. Carol, Anne, any last words before we open it up to the group? I love ending on the cooking note. And just to say that one of the wonderful things I learned from my time in China in relationship to the ancestors is that when you cook, when I cook now because of, of being with them, the smell and the steam and the essence goes up to my ancestors and I get to eat what's left over. They gave me life and I give them life back so that I can keep living. The only thing, Satya, that I would have to add is that she was portrayed as a fat woman. And one of the five women yesterday talked about that, about one's body image as a woman. And as I was pouring through the, I was one of the most Sister Wendy's pictorial history of Western art, the body really got decided it was white, but it was really also the, the beautiful form was determined way back in Greece. And it stays right up until today mm -hmm. so that women will struggle mightily with that body image mm -hmm. that they don't live up to. I mean, how many of us look like, uh, I look like Venus of Willendorf, but not like, <laughs> not like the one in, the, in Greece. Yeah. So, Anne, you're referring to Dr. Kimberly Howell. And again, the book is Seeing in the Dark, Wisdom Works by Black Women of Depth Psychology. And Dr. Howell spoke to embodiment and the fat body specifically. And she, again, named her goddess, a guiding goddess as Lizzo. So it's bringing all that back. Yeah, Carol? I just want to say, if you, for Anne or for anyone, if you want to see a wonderful trenchant, biting, comedic, hilarious take on women in the history of Western art. Hannah Gadsby's monologue, Douglas. Nanette. She, she pretty much nails it and does it with, you know, and especially goes after Picasso in a really powerful yeah. way. But to your point earlier, Anne, about women lying around in diaphanous things, she says, yep, that's us women. That's what we've been doing all our lives. We're just lying around with diaphanous, sheer things stuck in our cracks and waiting for someone to look at us. <laughs> and that's kind of the mild part of what it is that she does in her observations. So I, I commend that to anybody who's interested in and just exactly a, a wonderful comedic alternative point of view about West, history of Western art yeah. and, the, and women in it. That's right. And the damage that's done to all of us when we haven't yet deconstructed what we were raised with, how confusing, profoundly confusing it is, I think, for everyone that this is the role that women should be playing. So how do we engage whatever side you're on in this dynamic? And Hannah Gadsby does such an extraordinary job of deconstructing that. And I think putting a very fine point on what it means to love the art and not the artist. It's something that I really don't subscribe to and why I think as much as I 
devour and love Jung's work, I'm conscious of his failings and I'm conscious of also the way that he was conscious of his failings, which gives me space to then explore this work very deeply so that I don't have to se separate a man's psychology or a human's psychology from what they produced. I think when we do that, we're, we're really taking in a lot of toxins that we're pretending are not toxins. So we'll leave it there. So we welcome folks as always, to bring your own questions and comments to us for the next 20 minutes, 15 minutes. We'll see what unfolds. Hi, Claudia. Lincoln in the Bardo was one of my favorite books and all those dead who just could not leave this earth, you know, and because of their unfinished business, but maybe it was just that they had not lived their animal bodies. I mean, it'd be interesting to read it again through this lens of Jung. I mean, I can think of a couple of them that was obvious that they had not lived their animal body and had restrained themselves from what they wanted to do because of this or that. And um, because the, the dead, the fact that we redeem the dead merely by living our animal body is just profound. And the gift that we give the world, our ancestors as well as the world today, by living our animal body. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to be get, replacing my lovely Moki with two kittens very soon now that I'm back from Montana. So. Oh, good. You're getting a new, new, I, new family there, new animal body family. I need it, yeah. Beautiful. <laughs> Love that. Good, good personal application. And I'd be interested to read Lincoln and the Bardo as well with that lens. I've yet to tackle it. Hi, Linda. So um, it's interesting. I'm still, you know, deeply immersed in my, or, or getting more immersed in my study of Athena. And so very much kind of in the Greek pantheon. And so all of this is fascinating because it, it sort of, emphasizes kind of my perspective of trying to re-read re the myth of Athena um, through, a, you know, um, more connection to the feminine. But so I was struck by Carol's last comments about cooking and the steam and the feeding of the steam and thinking about the story that um, is told about how Zeus was tricked by Hermes into not having the prime um, meat and just the gods living off the smoke of the sacrifice, right? So I think about those are those are myths are told through a patriarchal lens, and again makes me rethink about how what there is in the steam and the smoke of the sacrifice that goes up to the gods and and that connection to the dead and feeding the dead. And it just kind of, again, becomes this profound way of re-looking at these stories, not through a patriarchal lens and, and what's the part that gets left out, you know, and that embodiment of the animal, animal body, right? I, I love this. This is just so, so uh, profound. And to really take the time to really think about all of these images and, and what we've lost by not being not not feeling the embodiment. And I think about how the importance of Athena's connection to the olive tree and again to the tree. And that sort of yes, that's how she wins the the vote of the Athenian people, but it's the women who who vote her 
as the the deity of the city but um but that connection to the olive tree is not so emphasized in her story you know so again it's that connection to the tree and we lose the importance of that so those are just my comments it it's wonderful to be reminded of the hermes story of of the 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 cattle i mean i i just really really briefly and this is so reductive but when Hermes is born as an infant, f- fully formed, a-, a little bit like Athena, fully formed, he's starving. And he steals his stepbrother's cattle. He steals Apollo's yeah. cattle. And not only does he steal them, but he makes fake feet so that they are, and, 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 and cons uh, the only witness into lying for him takes the, that, that, that's essentially the story of Mercury retrograde, incidentally, of, of, uh. of his ability to move things backwards and brings them back to his, the cave of his birth to slaughter them and cook them. And I don't, I'm not sure I'm remembering this correctly, but there's a point where he thinks, wait a minute, I better sacrifice and this oh, isn't yeah. just my appetite. I better sacrifice one of these or, or I'll be in bigger trouble than I already know I am. And in fact, when Apollo you know, calls their dad and says, that brat stole my cattle and what are you going to do about it? Zeus confronts Hermes and says, you know, and Hermes lies. He says, I'm just a baby. How could I possibly have done that? And Zeus says, look, kid, I saw everything. And the only reason you're not on the hook for bigger trouble is because you had the presence of mind to sacrifice to us. And I, I think about that, about appetite, about the, you know, the appetite, about coming into the world with appetite and how you both grow and individuate and stay integrated with not only the world as it is, but the world as it has come to you. And I, I love that, that. I love those Hermes stories. Isn't it in the Homeric hymns? Isn't that where you get the kind of the best version of that story? I don't, it's not in the Iliad and the yeah. Odyssey. That's a different kind of Hermes. That's really a different yeah. Hermes experience than the, yeah. than the hymn. But th- thank you for that. I, I, that is a favorite story of mine. And do you want to add anything there? Anything that comes up for you? The only thing that comes up with me is that I often think in the Greek myths, you are looking again at a moment of tremendous transition Mm -hmm. where Mm -hmm. someone like Apollo is taking over Delphi, for example, the Delphic Oracle. Mm -hmm. So you always, or Athena still is the olive tree, but she's born out of her father's head. So you have to read it continually with a, a double lens. Mm-hmm. And I think that's how we will look at this moment in time, mm-hmm. trying to look at it with a double lens. Mm-hmm. I think that's really right, Anne. And I think also, if you think about it, for anybody who has read Peter Kingsley's An Arrow Waiting to Pierce You, that Western civilization was carried in an arrow by a god from, from the Mongols, from the great Asian uh, desert cultures to Greece, and there's a, a, a Kingsley has some really interesting speculations about culture bearers, about information and culture bearing, and the consequences for it. And I think about all of the very early stories in ancient Greece, for example, of one of Hercules' labors is to slay the Stymphalian birds. 
Well, the Stymphalian birds, the Stymphalian lake was the site of an ancient priestess crow oracle. And these priestesses were famous and attracted um, questioners like the Delphic, you know, like the uh, um, Delphic oracle. The Stymphalians attracted questioners from all over the ancient world where you would ask a question of the divine and they would speak to you, the spirits would speak to you through the crows. And the crows' cries were interpreted by women. There were, you know, the, this, these old ideas in Gimbutas of bird women and when, you know, Terry Tempest Williams, when women were birds, this, this whole idea of the unity of the feminine and the, and the natural world. And it, it was one of Hercules' labors to slay the Stymphalian birds. But what that meant was that the rising cult of very powerful priests eliminated a very old feminine power center you know, sort of like the takeover of the Delphic Oracle, too, in terms of Apollo. So it's all of those moments, certainly from an astrological point of view, we are today at one of those huge pivotal moments. We're at the, the turn of the Great Age. And all of those stories came out of the last turn of the Great Age, of the, pre, of the, the precession from Taurus to Aries, then from Aries to Pisces, and now here we are finally after many years of, of the age of Aquarius at the edge of a new age. And I, I, to, to your point, we really are at that pivot right now. Thank you, Linda. Hi, Helene. Hi. First of all, I really want to thank you for having made podcasts because I'm listening to your <laughs> listening to all of this several times because I have sometimes a bit of difficulty with the language. So I'm really grateful for that. I wanted to actually ask Anne what the relationship with Rudolf Steiner and if there was a relationship with Jung and Rudolf Steiner. That was one question. If you know anything about that, because I'm a I've been into some of his, a lot of his books doing biodynamic agriculture, and I would just I was just wondering because he talks a lot about about the anima and the and the spirit and so I just and then there was another thing I don't know have you ever heard about Arne Ness who did deep ecology does that ring a bell I mean his nephew was married to Diana Ross he's probably more known for this mm. but he is this amazing ecologist from Norway who died but when he was seven years old he went for a walk with his parents and he stood in front of one of the big mountains and he said he, oh, it, there was like a little opening in the forest and he told his mother, this is my father. And um, she thought, you're crazy. And he said, one day when I grow old, I will, I will live with my father. I will go and live with my father. So he made this little hut and he went climbing and he, he lived there. And he was very, very um, linked to the, the, animal, the, the animal part, the nature. And, the, and he's really worth looking into what he, what he was what he went to in into, but I just think that Steiner as well has a very profound way of looking at um, at what we do to our animals, how we how things are work with the animal. Yeah, so I just wondered if Anne knew anything about that. <laughs> no, I'm going to throw that question to you. I don't know whether Steiner and Jung had. I don't know whether there was any relationship there. But thank you for the story of the father. Yeah, Randy, I saw you unmute yourself. Do you want to speak to Steiner? Hi. And uh, looking into Steiner and Jung's relationship, doing the work on Helma Off Clint, and you know, my daughter certainly went to a Wolf-inspired school, and 
I think a lot of folks who are sympathetic to Jung and Steiner see parallels to them. What I have found is Jung had no interest in Steiner. And I think it's because Steiner was doing the exact opposite of what Jung intended to do with the Red Book. Steiner, like a lot of charismatics, um, found a way to communicate with his unconscious, but unlike Jung and like a lot of communications, turned himself into a guru and created a whole institution uh, with the hierarchy that expected a lot of people to conform and fall in line. Yeah. Mm. So I don't think, I didn't go too deep in it to it once I found out enough that Jung wasn't interested and I could guess why, yeah. I think, too, part of my own bias now with Steiner and Randy and I did a presentation on the relationship between Hilma off Klint's work and Carl Jung's work in the Red Book. So the, the art that came out of these two humans completely separate from one another in different countries and com completely unknown to one another, because, of course, Hilma off Klint's work was unknown to anyone and Jung kept his work. Uh, secret. So the Red Book was not published right until 2009. So both of their artwork um, was just coming from this profoundly unconscious and potent fountain. But one thing that I think in Randy and I's conversations, I know Carol and I have spoken, Carol has been speaking with both of us about this for years, but, but this feeling that Steiner re really deeply rejected Hilma off Clint's work. And so then there's this Pre okay. tremendous kind of spiritual shift for me in relation to it because again the way that I can stay devoted to Jung is because he was constantly elevating the women in his circle in various ways not perfectly by any means right but he was constantly doing that and deeply conscious that the feminine was where this was coming from in his own psyche and to see Steiner with all of his brilliant work kind of shove Hilma off Clint to the background is like, it's sort of like a personal wound that I can't, I haven't gotten over yet. Maybe I should, maybe it's a bias at this point. Yeah. I did look quite a bit into Steiner's uh, attitudes on art and anybody who has a parent in a Waldorf school, you pretty much understand like, yes, there's a lot of art involved, but there's a reason why all the students are prescribed to paint exactly the same, use the same language. It's highly prescriptive. And Helma Offclint was producing work that didn't fit the model. And he was someone who didn't do very well outside of his own wheelhouse. Yeah. Mm. Helene, yeah. does that break your spirit where we went uh, in the direction no, of that? I, I mean, I'm a, I'm a big fan of a lot of things with Steiner. And, I, and I, one of the things that I think he's, he was a great artist. I mean, he was, a, he was an amazing artist. And he's made, I don't know if any of you have been to the Goetheanum and have seen his amazing sculpture he's made in, in wood, which sort of made me think of Anne. That's why I was, when you were talking about Henry Moore, who's, of course, I'm completely in love with, but uh, it's true. I think, I think you're right about Jung being very, talking very much about the, the feminine aspect of it, where Steiner is still very much uh, male. Spirit. Yeah. And we can, hold, we can hold both of them, right? This is not at exactly. all. No, exactly. It's not a competition. Yeah. I was just wondering right. if, if they had any contact or if there was anything because when you work with the agriculture side of agricultural side of it, there are lots of things about understanding what animals do in order to understand who you are right. and to take the elements of almost a bit like with the Chinese things that you were mentioning the other day that you, if you want to eliminate flies, you have to take the dead flies and put them with one type of wood and burn them and put the ashes out or they're just, these weird things that sort of, I don't really get all of it, but there's a lot about the cow as well. So yeah. I, and Anne, you were mentioning once about 
how you when you went to university that you you were chewing on the stuff and you became the cow. So I'm very fond of cows because of Rudolf Steiner. So anyway, that's just a... But it's I get, brilliant. I get thank it. you, yeah. Helene. Love, love what you bring. Okay, um, and can I just thank you, both of you or all of you in this, because it's so beautiful to understand so much more about this whole thing that I, I haven't got the red book and I'm hoping to get it when I go to Switzerland because where I am, I'm really in rural... Sardinia, no, no chance of getting, even Amazon doesn't really want to come here, so. Lorna, you've had your hand up for a bit, so we're going to go out with you here. Just wanted to share a thought that floated through today uh, whilst I was thinking about animals and human disconnection with them. I think vaguely uh, a wolf face, very calm and wise. I just suddenly saw that and uh, I heard the words, I feel, therefore I am. Mm. Beautiful. I love that. Going through the left door instead, I feel, therefore I am. Thank you. And I also wanted wanted to thank you, uh, Sacha and Carol and Anne, for the amazing work that you've been doing over the last four or five months, whatever it is, how you go on and on and on, and it's absolutely amazing. So thank you so very much. Mm, Thank you. Thanks, Lorna. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. It's really been a pleasure. And, and I'm excited to see, we're going to, I think, do 30 episodes in the end. So who would have thought at the beginning of this, when we were, I was still in the mindset, oh, we'll do this for two or three weeks and see, we'll just do some salons and see what unfolds. Here we are with 30 episodes by the end of it. And hopefully a new president elected when we end. We'll see what unfolds. But it's been a long journey. Thank you all. Thank you, Carol. Thank you, Anne. Thank you. Bye-bye. For more, please visit salameinstitute.com. And please review, rate, and subscribe to this podcast if you haven't already. Many thanks to our incredible podcast team. To Anne Carroll for German translation and soulful insights. To our producer, Ayal Alvis, for turning this rough audio into a podcast. To Kelly Swenson for your dedicated work behind the scenes. To Haley Hendricks for the incredible podcast music. And to Ray Davis for our beautiful art. You're all brilliant and talented, and we're very grateful. Please tune in soon for another episode of the Salome Podcast.